Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing again. Believe in a power greater than what you are going through when you don't know what to do. That's right. When you don't know what to do, just keep on breathing. From the City of Angels in Los Angeles and from the Big Apple in New York City, welcome to all my listeners out there in Radio Land. I'm Dave, the Caregiver's Caregiver at caregiverdave.com, along with my lovely co-host Adrian Gruberg at thecaregiverspace.org. And we're coming to you live and on demand 24-7 on numerous syndicated radio and podcast networks on 25 global audio and video platforms including iHeartRadio, iTunes, YouTube, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Vimeo, Podbean, Feedspot, and the list goes on and on. I won't bore you with that. In fact, we're proud to be voted number one caregiver podcast of the top 50 on Player FM and number three on Feedspot out of thousands. And we have an especially exciting show planned for you today, don't we, Adrian? Yes, we do. There she is. Peter G. Levine. Pete is an educator. He uses books, magazines, articles, and columns, blogs, and seminars after uh, also college lectures to explain cortical plasticity. Sounds like a very smart guy. He is the author yeah. of the book Stronger After Stroke, now in its third edition. Wow. And he, he has co-authored dozens of journals, uh, articles, as well as many Articles in magazines, websites, blogs. He also conducts seminars throughout the U.S. covering brain plasticity as it relates to brain pathologies. But before we get started, I want to take this moment and thank my last week's guest, Karen Warner Schuler, the Sudden Caregiver Roadmap for Resilient Caregiving. And just a reminder, you can watch or listen to that interview and all our interviews on our membership website, caregiverdave.com or any of the other 25 global networks that I mentioned earlier. All right, enough of that. Pete, welcome to the Caregiver Dave Show. We are so excited to have you on. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Adrian. I appreciate it. Nice to be on. <laughs> well, I always like to ask my guests, just who is Peter G. Levine, and why was he placed on this earth? So I, I just, on the way home from work, I listened to lastly last week's podcast and I kind of thought oh no he's going to ask me that and who am I <laughs> there's a complete existential angst I was going through who am I really and, oh, you're lucky you no. had so much time to prepare that's funny know. you know the more time I had to prepare the worse it got that's the problem oh, so you shouldn't have peaked you would have done better just spontaneously I think you're right about that pretend like you heard that for the first time Okay, so you know what? I'm going to give you the long answer since you asked. And uh, yeah, so uh, so why was I put on this earth? You know, I'm pretty sure because I've dealt with my own little brain problems for since, I don't know, since I started going to school basically, um, mm -hmm. that I, I feel like that's my strength is being able to explain things simply to people because I need to be able to explain things to myself simply. And I figure if I can get it, then just about anybody can get it. When I was going through, when I was going through school, I was probably the first person in the United States diagnosed with what they used to call hyperactivity. Mm. Now, now of course they call it attention deficit disorder right there's not <laughs> like the word deficit isn't enough they gotta double down with it so that they can sell lots of drugs and uh, <laughs> apparently now I have a deficit and a disorder and then later on and you know back in the 60s and 70s when I was going to school they really you know maybe they had heard of it they didn't know anything about dyslexic dys, uh, dyslexia I'm also mildly dyslexic um, and so the, what they would do is basically say, you know, just don't disturb the smart people. They're all up here in the front. <laughs> Sit back there. Don't make any noise, you know. And uh, it was kind of a disaster. Then on top of it, my family moved mm. a, a lot. So 14 different schools, K through 12. Um, some of them were international moves. And, um, and so I struggled through school in a huge way. And uh, 
but managed to to get through it. And then uh, in when I was in college, my older sister had a terrible car accident. Uh, coming home, my parents lived overseas. They had rented a house on the Jersey Shore in a town called Avalon. And we had gotten all the family together to visit in this beautiful house. And uh, and so we, we had the whole Christmas party, and it was great and everything. And then my sister was going to drive home a day earlier than I was. I was living in Virginia at the time. Her car gets cut off on the New Jersey Turnpike. And if you've ever been on the New Jersey Turnpike, it's, well, it's, you guys are from New York and LA. I think you kind of understand what I'm talking about. And her car tumbled. Uh, she was medevac to a hospital, um, in a coma for the next couple of months. My mother had to come. My parents were living in Saudi Arabia. They had wow. send my mom home to be a caregiver for her. And, uh, she ended up um, being in rehab for the next year and a half. Mm. She moved back to Saudi Arabia with my parents. Um, and, you know, in Saudi, they lived – is this boring yet? Is, no. Is this, no. Not boring. Okay. So no. she's uh, – <laughs> my dad worked for a company called Aramco, which just went public. It's the big oil company. Oil Dave company. Probably, I know that. Dave, Dave probably knows about <laughs> it. And, uh, and so um, – so in in Saudi, they lived in a big compound, very sequestered areas, very nice place to to convalesce after a, a head trauma, a severe brain damage, and um, and there were a lot of American men there. They were digging for oil. They were petroleum engineers for the most part. The only women that were there were nurses that worked at the big hospital there. Huh. So so my. My sister, Wendy, became this cause celeb there where she was like the cute girl that was college educated but was this broken flower. And she started getting her faculties back. Um, she has what's called dysarthria, which is not aphasia. Uh, aphasia, you can't figure out what to say. Dysarthria, you, you know just fine what to say. But it sounds like you have marble uh. in your mouth. So she has That's that. Right. It's kind of fetching, except she likes to drink wine a lot. And then when she's tipsy, you really can't understand what she's saying. And she's a toxic show. She walks with a wide base of support. And, um, and so she got married to one of these petroleum engineers, ended up very wealthy, had a couple of kids. They moved first to Scotland, then they moved to London. She got a townhouse there. They moved to Houston, Texas. And so... Like I, you guys are the experts here, but it seems to me that caregiving is not just one flavor. It's clearly this is a person. Okay, so before she married this her her husband, she decided she wanted to go back to school and get a master's degree. Mm. You know, this is how well she was doing cognitively, completely, still smarter than me. It pisses me off when people with brain injury are still smarter than me. Like, how does that happen? I deal with stroke survivors all the time that are smarter than I am, and it's, it's just frustrating and embarrassing. But anyway, so, so she goes back to school. She gets her master's degree. They get, um, they, get, um, they get married. They do quite well. And now she's wealthy. She lives in Houston. But you can imagine that the arc of recovery for somebody like her and my parents being a re being a, a, a caregiver for her was this great, almost enlightening experience where the person got better. I mean, how often wow. does that happen where the caregiver, where there's a, the trajectories increase, not decrease? Now, brain injury uh, not is often. A, not often. It's a non-progressive disease, right? So is stroke. Um, I'm a caregiver for my wife. She has acute leukemia. Mm. This is right now we're at the place where um, she's not getting worse, but she ain't getting better. And uh, and so that takes us into a whole whole nother level. So who am I? I, I like to think I'm I'm help people that I'm somebody that can help people that have brain problems because I have my own brain problems and I deal with them every day and I try to make things simple. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, my question is, the first time I heard neuroplasticity, 
what is it, and uh, what? How does it affect the brain? <laughs> yeah. So we have a hundred billion neurons. Um, <laughs> that's that's a huge number, a hundred billion. Um, it pales in comparison to the number of synaptic connections between those neurons. So each neuron, the hundred billion, has about twenty thousand, on average, connections to to its low uh, to its uh, closest neighbors. Hmm. And and so that number, the number of connections, is a quadrillion. As we age, and once you're over the age of 40, you start to lose neurons. They start to die off. It's a very natural process. It's fine. Because Some what lose you, more than others, right? Yes. <laughs> what you lose in neurons, you can gain in synaptic connections. Hmm. So the beauty of... Is that a good thing? That's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, typically, I, there can be bad neuroplasticity, um, drug addiction, you know, um, certain forms of mental illness, depression, where you can't dig yourself out. Um, these are considered bad forms of plasticity, but even that's negotiable. If I become addicted to playing guitar, as sometimes I am when I'm feeling like playing guitar a lot, that's not a bad thing. That addiction is good. It builds up a lot of redundancies in the connections. And that's a lifelong learning experience. And when you can do that, you can hedge yourself against Alzheimer's, dementia, um, and all these other things that have eventually are going to hit your head one way or another. So plasticity happens throughout the arc of life, and it's inevitable. But the, the thing that neuroscientists talk about a lot is that you can control, and they're not sure how much we can control. We don't know what the parameters are. You know, there's an old saying in neuroscience that if we knew what the brain went through to pick up and drink out of a glass of water, we'd be about two or 300 years ahead of where we are now. It <laughs> seems like a simple thing. Swallowing is controlled by the brain. You know, you look at robotic arms, to pick up and, and drink out of a glass, they can do the same thing over and over again. But as soon as you put a different weight in the glass, as soon as you have a dynamic environment, it becomes very difficult. So hmm. we're trying to figure out how the brain works. I've just been lucky that I work in a lab that has really cool brain scanning technology. And, um, and I've been able to see this maybe a little bit closer than a lot of people. Wow. Are you, are you a PhD or or... I mean, what was your major? What 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 is your school schooling background? So I, I have a, a bachelor's degree from George Mason University, which um, which is in Northern Virginia. Go Pats! <laughs> We're the Patriots, um, and and that was in communication, which has come in awfully handy. Okay. Um, my other degree, my clinical degree, is in physical therapy. Ah. And that I, that I got much later in life, and um, in my mid thirties. Uh, here's a weird story: when you when you when you get a degree in physical therapy, you have to do clinicals. So you have to go and actually show that the stuff that you learn didactically, you can do and help people. And uh, I went through a lot of clinicals, um, and they weren't all real great. Um, they're, they're it's tough. They throw a lot at you. But but the and I went through four of them total, um, and the, the last three were not great. They were they were tough. It was a tough slog. The first one, I married my clinical instructor. <laughs> Is that legal? My, yeah. <laughs> so this was bad. that's a great question because now that I'm a now that I'm a professor, um, they tell you like in the when they hire you, they say don't date the students. Uh huh. And then somebody inevitably in our classes, somebody said, what if they leave? And they said, <laughs> they might come back. Do not date the students ever. And my daughter gives us crap all the time. You dated <laughs> your student. And, you know, when they were young, we told my kids, you know, well, maybe one day you'll, you'll date your teacher. And they're like, <laughs> ew, oh, no, no, that's disgusting. So, um. So I forgot what the question was. Um, I'm having way too much fun already. Well, that's okay. We'll move on to the next question. Okay, good, good. Because <laughs> I think you did answer it. Um, how does your brain change when you're a caregiver now? If something magical happens to your brain, or does it just turn to mush instantly? <laughs> <laughs> 
boy, you know, um, <laughs> so I think you guys would be the experts on that. I, I looked, I did do a little bit of a, a lit review to try to figure out if somebody's actually tried to answer that question. What is the neuroplastic change that happens in somebody who is a caregiver? I would imagine that the reason I couldn't find anything was because um, it's such an apples to oranges comparison because everybody's experience is so utterly different. Mm -hmm. um, we do know one thing. Here's what I will say. I, and I wonder, and I kept thinking about this. Do you guys consider parenting as being a caregiver? I, I of do. Of course. Yes. Yes. Okay, good. So that gives us a good baseline because there's a lot of research on that. And the research says that for both men and women, there is nothing more neuroplastic that you can possibly do with your brain than having and raising children. Mm. In fact, it's, it's more than neuroplastic. In men, testosterone, shortly after the child is born, plummets. Mm. And ox oxytocin, which is known as the hugging hormone, it's the hormone um, that's, uh, that's formed when the bond is made between mother and child with breastfeeding. Um, it's, it's the hugging hormone. It makes you feel like snuggling and cuddling. Um, that goes up in men. So let's review. Testosterone goes down. Oxytocin goes up. I have no idea why professional athletes have children. Because it, it, they, <laughs> what are they going to go to the football field? We're coming up on the Super Bowl. Are they going to go out to the football field and go, come on, let's just hug. My testosterone is down. So <laughs> just massive amounts of neuroplastic change happen happens because of this caregiving. You have to learn right out of the box, so to speak, how to change a poopy diaper. Because if you can't change a poopy diaper, they are back in the hospital, they got a terrible rash and you're a bad parent. You know, and there's, you know, nobody wants to change poopy diapers. But you have to learn these skills and then you gotta do crazy things like relearn algebra. Because the kid is in front of the- They you know, need to. Yeah, I mean, they gotta relearn this and you're tearing your hair out because they're in tears every night. So, and um, Adrian, are, are you a parent as, no. as well? You're not. So, so I Dave, was. Yes, Dave knows what <laughs> I'm talking are. about. You are. You are a parent. And, yeah, uh, probably. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know. I mean, Parents to older kids, yes. Parent to older kids. Look, here's what I'm told by older people. Um, they, they, uh, they leave, and then they come back, and they bring other people, and sometimes animals. This is what I'm tell, told. I think older people are just trying to scare me. We've had one that's had a sort of a failure to launch, and then my son had a, scholar, a scholarship playing for playing soccer. He's an all-state, all-regional uh, soccer player, and he decided to, to not go to that school because their soccer season was canceled, and he didn't want to lose a year of eligibility. So without him, he's 6'3", weighs about 185 pounds of just solid rock. He just cleaned out the garage. I like to think of myself as a caregiver, but he's helped a lot. The other thing I should say is, as a, because I feel like a bit of a charlatan, my wife takes pretty darn good care of herself. Mm. All the meds that have to be done IV, all of her, Oof. all of her um, appointments, all that stuff, she juggles all those balls, and I know that's not an advantage that a lot of caregivers does. On top of that, she's also our fiduciary, so she takes care of the immense amount of bills that come through the door every week and that's a whole different subject that just tears me apart um but uh but it i would imagine that the neuroplastic change that happens if you're a caregiver is absolutely massive and i also think it's probably a very um ripe area for clinical research Yes. And, I, and I do want to apologize to the video portion of the broadcast because uh, if you're looking at me, I look very distracted uh, with a bunch of other things and I've got so many fires I'm trying to put out. Uh, the gas station has got a problem. Uh, Charlene <laughs> had an issue. 
the the tree trimmers had an issue and and look at I'm doing it all so seamlessly if this was an audio <laughs> broadcast you'd never even know but right. <laughs> uh, please don't think that I'm uninterested or I'm not listening to you or not paying attention because I was I can do I uh, apparently I can chew gum and uh, think at the same the time juggling yes yes so um <laughs> explain your caregiving roles do you have a caregiving role today and if you said it and I wasn't uh, listening I apologize I, honestly, Dave, I, I just figured you were taking notes because what I, what I was saying was so utterly amazing. You, you needed it, it for later. It was amazing, yes. So you're, you're asking what my role is as a caregiver? As a caregiver, right, because our audience is burned out it's, caregivers, and they want to they wanna know that, they, that you can relate to their pain, you know? I mean, it sounds like, you, you know, you, your wife has leukemia, but um, her cognitive skills are certainly still there if she's taking care of herself a great deal can manage her meds and yeah. is your fiduciary yeah, mean, there's many levels of of care like i'm very fortunate because my wife is is like super woman wonder woman and uh, martha stewart she cooks she cleans she uh, decorates amazing. she sews dolls all with one arm and one leg tied behind her back so I, I kind of feel guilty calling myself a caregiver because compared to some other people, you know, whose, whose spouse is bedridden and incontinent and, I mean, you know, just go on and on and on. So uh, right. is your role of caregiver kind of similar to mine? It's just kind of almost maintenance-free? Um, a little bit. So first of all, because of COVID, she's immunocompromised. She's had a, a, a stem cell transplant. Mm. And, um, Does that help, by the way? Someone just recommended that to us. Uh, well, stem cell. I, I, stem cell transplant, if you have well, leukemia? No, just whatever they do. No, I know the cancer oh. does that, but uh, as far as a stroke, because your wife had a stroke as well? Oh. Uh, no, no, my, my wife just has leukemia. Because your book talks about... Uh, it's about stroke, yeah. Yeah, so I just assumed. I'm sorry. Oh, well... Oh no no. So so they so, they said that stem cell um, implants or whatever they do with stem cells can help uh, stroke and brain damage. Is that true? Yeah. So I've I've done some writing and some reading about stem cells. It's just not there yet. All right. It's gonna be there one day. It's not there. Here, here's what what happens with stem cells uh, for brain injury. There's an area in the brain that's dead. It's called the core, and there's an area around it called the penumbra. It's the peri-infarct area. It's much bigger than the core. And they take stem cells and they drill a hole through the skull because they have to get it into this peri-infarct area, the penumbra. And they drill a single hole through the skull. They take mm. a really long needle. They stick it into the brain till it gets to the penumbra and they squirt in a, what's described as a conical fashion. They squirt a little bit of stem cells here, which will then differentiate into new neurons, and a little bit over there, and a little bit over there. The weird thing about the brain is it doesn't feel pain. Right. I mean, it feels, it, it processes pain throughout the body, but it, once you get in there, of course, drilling a hole in the skull always sucks, but once you get in there, <laughs> You can stick a huge needle in there, and the person may have a childhood memory or smell a banana, but it doesn't hurt them. Um, the problem, as you can imagine, for clinical trials for stem cells is that people that come in, when you do clinical trials on human beings, you have to do what's called informed consent, which is you have to tell them everything about the trial. What can go good? What can go bad? What alternatives they have? because we have a long history as human beings of doing clinical research on other human beings and it's been a horror show. And we don't have to talk about the Nazis, we can talk about the Tuskegee experiments against uh, African-American men that had syphilis and they just, they gave them a placebo right. instead of giving them penicillin, it was a horror show. So they made very strict laws. When you show up and you show the person the size of the needle that's gonna go into their brain, they run out the door, so it becomes, yeah. it becomes like, incredibly difficult to recruit for these kinds of studies. Like yeah, a thing? horse needle. <laughs> it's, you know, needle it's a needle made for a horse. That reminds me of the movie, uh, the sequels of Silence of the Lambs, you know, where 
uh, he 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 took the top of the, the top guy's of the... skull off, and he's sitting there uh, eating his brain as as the guy's just kind of drunk and sedated, and he didn't feel a thing. And I'm saying, well, okay, that makes sense then if they're not feeling pain. Anyway, <laughs> this is a good point to take a break for those of you who want to go vomit. Um, and we have a brand new sponsor. Uh, so let's just uh, get right into that. We'll be right back. Hey, all you California caregivers out there. I want to tell you about an important project from UCLA that's all about bringing caregivers some relief and finding solutions to the ongoing caregiving crisis. You already know that caregivers are stretched way too thin. But did you also know that California will need 600,000 more caregivers and home care workers in the next 10 years? To meet this growing demand, we need to change our caregiving system now. How can you make this happen? Well, if you've hired a home care worker or have a loved one who has lived or is living in up to a six-bed board and care facility in California, you can share your experiences in a short 15-minute survey. The results of this survey will help us fight for family caregivers to get the support they need. Every eligible participant will get a free $10 gift card. So make your voice heard now. Make a difference and earn a few dollars at the same time. To take the survey and learn more, go to CaliforniaCareSurvey.org. That's CaliforniaCareSurvey.org. Thanks. And welcome back <laughs> uh, with our guest, Peter Levine, and our uh, beautiful co-host, Adrian Gruberg. Uh, what, what it's all about is um, there's a website, CaliforniaCareSurvey.org. If you are in California and you have a loved one in a nursing home with up to six beds, just go to that website, CaliforniaCareSurvey.org. Go to CaliforniaCareSurvey.org, CaliforniaCareSurvey.org, and take the survey, and you get a free $10 gift card. And that, if that isn't easy money, then I don't know what it is. But we'll play that commercial uh, at the next break as well. So um, after that quick break, <laughs> we're going to move on to the next question, which is... Um, what is the role of the caregiver in recovery for someone with brain or injury or stroke or, uh, you know, quadriplegia, if that's the way you say it, all of the things that the brain is just isn't working right? So the role would be as varied as the brain injury. There's an old saying about brain injury. If you've seen one brain injury, you've seen... One brain injury. One brain They're injury. <laughs> all so utterly different. Just the manifestation of stroke, and I've seen them all. I mean, there's so many different kinds of things. You can have an anoxic brain injury where somebody is 23 years old and uh, they can't recognize faces all of a sudden. Um, you can have somebody who is aphasic somebody who has dense hemiparesis and one side doesn't work at all. You can have people who have changes in emotions. And um, I've seen situations where the wife says, you know, he's really funny. But before <laughs> his stroke, he wasn't funny at all. Like it just developed this, you know, and there's, there's these weird situations with the brain where somebody will have a, either a brain injury, um, an acquired brain injury, they've had a car accident or they've had a stroke, and it somehow reveals some sort of savant kind of thing that they never mm -hmm. knew that they had. Um, mm -hmm. There's great cases of this happening. So somebody developing a sense of humor could it's All I'm saying is it's all over the place. Yeah, some people end up in nursing homes. Some people are completely dependent. Some people can't toilet themselves. Other people have had strokes and you'd never know it. So um, what you would hope for a caregiver, because the brain is plastic, that there is a trajectory upwardly, the way it was with my sister, the way it is with um, some of the people in our studies. Um, yeah. But I, I would love to give you a one size fits all, but I would imagine that caregiving for that population is just as varied as the, the brain injuries that exist. Um, how does music make it easier for Alzheimer's and dementia? 
Uh, my mother and mother-in-law both had that, and they used to love it when I put the headphones on them and played the music of their life, which was in the right. 40s, you know, your hit parade and all that stuff. And they would almost become like their old self again. They would start right. smiling and remembering and, and bring up stories that they remembered. Tell us what's going on in that brain. So um, I do a lot of CEU talks. These are continuing education talks to OTs and PTs. And one of the things I play is a real-time uh, fMRI. So fMRI, MRI, you know what that is. It's the great, beautiful, yes. static picture. fMRI takes the great beautiful static picture of this, in this case of the brain, and it answers another question, where's blood flowing? Because if we know where the blood is flowing or more blood is flowing, then we know which part of the brain is lighting up. And this video is gorgeous. What, what these uh, researchers from Finland did was they, you know, if you have a thought, the blood to, to feed those neurons takes a while to get there. So the thought comes first, or the movement comes first, or the emotion comes first, and then the blood follows it. And so what they did was they took a video of the fMRI, but synced it with the music so that it looked like it happened at exactly the same time. And there is no part of the brain that doesn't light up. Deep, the limbic system, deep reptilian oh. portions of the brain. The visual cortex lights up because we see stuff. Movement portions of the brain, the the cerebellum, because we it moves us in a, a number of ways. But because there's a physicality to move uh, to to music, and so somebody that you can't get through to in any other way, music just whoosh, right through. Amazing. And and there's great. That's why I can remember the songs from 50 years ago, mm -hmm. every single lyric. I can't remember what I had for dinner last night. <laughs> And me too. <laughs> you know, there's two things that really bring back memories. I think you guys would probably agree with this. One is music. Yep. It brings you right back to that first kiss, right, or whatever <laughs> it was. And and the other is olfaction, is, is smell. What? Is that no. sm oh, smell? The smell, yeah. Mm. The, smell, the smell of something. It, it, that smell of the bonfire when you kissed your first girlfriend at, right. the, <laughs> at the fall brawl when you were in junior high. Wow. Okay, so I I, can back. <laughs> I will t I will tell you that the the music that I lost my virginity to, and let me know if this is <laughs> too X-rated. It was Rush's twenty tw Rush's twenty one twelve. That whole side of that first side of that album still brings back uh, great memories, as as does a, a lot of other music. But yeah, so they there's a great movie called you mean Alive. Eighteen twelve is that one you're talking about? Um. No, no, it's not that one. It's okay. 2112 by the band uh, Rush. Rush. Okay. It, yeah, Rush. Yes, because um, what would you do? What would you be uh, listening to classical music, you know? Uh, <laughs> although if I, if, I was gonna, if it was going to be the first time, uh, that music, da -na 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 -na, that might be really, really good. It's like anyway, that movie... Um, uh, ten. Remember Bo Derek? She used to always yeah. make love to the to the uh, bolero. bolero. <laughs> it was, it was amazing. How does bolero okay. go? Um, it starts out very soft and just bills and bills and bills, and then it explodes. <laughs> you know. So I enough of that. How do we get onto that? Boy, I, I I'm sorry. We're talking it's about music on the brain. Okay, well that's taking you that. back. There there is a great you movie. Rate this show PG. <laughs> I'm sorry. There is a great movie. It's called Alive Inside. It's about the effects of music on the brain uh, in people with Alzheimer's and how, like your experience, Dave, where they're out to lunch completely. They won't talk to anybody, and you put on that music, and there's that little bit of something comes back to them, and all of a sudden they're very verbal, and they're willing to talk about yep. their youth because that's where they are. For and it it doesn't last forever. For therapists, it gives them a great opportunity. You know, a lot of times when somebody who has dementia or Alzheimer's sees a therapist come through the room, they have no idea what their name was. Um, right. And they forget everything, but they know that they're going to put them to work. So if the therapist can sit down and go, you know, let's not work right now. 
let me just play some music. I know you like the Beatles. Let's just do that. And you sit there for five minutes with them right. listening to the Beatles, and all of a sudden they're willing to work with you. So that's it's a great tool. That's awesome. I have a question. It, it, it has to do with this childlike business. What is it in Alzheimer's and dementia patients that will make them ask for their parents or think that, you know, I'm your mother or your 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 sister take take you back to you you think you're a kid again hmm what a what great a question yeah and I'm not super sure I have a great answer but here's what <laughs> I would but let's try so <laughs> my my wife is from Finland she's she's Finnish and uh and she uh you know, she speaks English beautifully. It's actually her third language. And um, and she took her boards here in the United States to be a PT in what for her was a third language, if you can imagine that. Um, now, at, let's say she's in the other room, and I don't want to yell it too loud, but let's say she does get dementia or Alzheimer's. I don't think it's going to happen to her, but I could be wrong. Um, what will happen is the last language that she learned will get scraped off first. So her English will leave first. Then the deeper language, which is Swedish. So now she'll have two languages, Finnish and Swedish. So then Swedish will leave her. And what she'll be left with is the deep memories. I think that's an analog for who is important to you, uh, mom and dad, my yeah. sisters. So when somebody walks through the door and they vaguely remind them, them that's the category that they put them in because that's what still exists. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I have an answer as well. Um, yeah. It's, you know, when, when a dementia patient doesn't recognize their child anymore, right. it's not that they lost a memory and they don't know who this person is. It's that their mind has been going backwards. So they remember their daughter not as a 50-year-old overweight, uh, <laughs> you know, unkempt person, but as a 12-year-old beautiful young lady and they don't see the resemblance and so you know they'll say well who are you you know what i mean yeah and they've actually proved that uh when when there was uh, a knock at the door and uh, she says who is it he goes well it's your husband and she goes oh because she recognized the voice apparently the voice hasn't changed that much and she opens the door and she sees this bald guy a middle age, you know, with a pot belly, and she goes, "Who are you? You're not my husband. Get out!" Because <laughs> she remembers he used to be tall, dark, and handsome. <laughs> yeah. So I throw yeah. that in. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I have a friend who uh, thinks. I mean, her husband's been dead for over twenty years, but now that she's, and I knew her before she had dementia, um, and. Now she thinks, I've gotten calls from her in the middle of the night that he's left her, that that he's left her for another woman, and she's got this whole scenario of, and I have to tell her, no, he loved you, he, you know, he's he's passed away. You have you have to explain it to her again and again and again. It's the same thing. She just keeps thinking that he left her. Yeah. It either actually happened or she really feared that it was happening and, you know, never really confronted him out of fear. That's my opinion. What's your well, opinion? he's not, he's just not there anymore. You know? I mean, when, when I it know. was, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it, but it was that those thoughts and feelings were obviously in the brain. They got there somewhere. She didn't right. just make them up out of thin air, thin air, right. you know. Yeah, it's not uncommon for them to, for people with Alzheimer's and dementia, um, to put things together wrong. That that just it it doesn't make logical sense necessarily. Right. So it's like a dream almost. Our dreams it's are so very messed up. Hard. It's <laughs> yeah. so hard to. That's why it's so hard to remember them when you wake up because they just, oh, you know, they just start falling apart like like sand through your fingers. You know, at least for yeah. me it does. Yeah. So uh, how can dopamine meds make caregiving harder in Parkinson's? So um, 
Explain what there, dopamine is first. So, so Parkinson's is a lack of dopamine. And dopamine controls movement. And when you don't have enough dopamine, there's the, uh, uh, the, the typical tremors that we would see. Mm-hmm. Um, there's two structures on um, either side of the brain stem. I wish I had. I have a model of a brain someplace, but anyway, they're called. We're the take s- a break. Well, during the break, you can bring that back. I'll, I'll get my brain. I'll get my brain when I. All right. So don't answer that. We'll just go to a break now, and we will be right back. So don't go away. How's that? Hey, all you California caregivers out there, I want to tell you about an important project from UCLA that's all about bringing caregivers some relief and finding solutions to the ongoing caregiving crisis. You already know that caregivers are stretched way too thin. But did you also know that California will need 600,000 more caregivers and home care workers in the next 10 years? To meet this growing demand, we need to change our caregiving system now. How can you make this happen? Well, if you've hired a home care worker or have a loved one who has lived or is living in up to a six-bed board and care facility in California, you can share your experiences in a short 15-minute survey. The results of this survey will help us fight for family caregivers to get the support they need. Every eligible participant will get a free $10 gift card. So make your voice heard now. Make a difference and earn a few dollars at the same time. To take the survey and learn more, go to CaliforniaCareSurvey.org. That's CaliforniaCareSurvey.org. Thanks. And welcome back <laughs> uh, with our guest, Peter Levine, and our uh, beautiful co-host, Adrian Gruberg. And uh, I just do want to add that um, that is a very important survey that Californians need to take. If you are listening to this, uh, you've got a couple of weeks to do it. So please hurry and don't uh, miss out on your opportunity to make $10. So we were talking about how dopamine meds can make caregiving harder in Parkinson's. Yeah, so um, I did go get my brain, finally. <laughs> there it is. So first of all... I could use a brain, too. <laughs> the thing is, like, this is the way the brain is often depicted. If you go to med school, you're often um, dissecting a, a f- what's called a fixed brain. Um, so... Um, a fixed brain is where they fermented in formaldehyde for a couple of weeks because as your brain sits in your skull right now, um, it, out of all the blood that you have in your body, uh, about a quarter of that blood is running through your, your brain. Wow. So if you would see the, is that uh, a real brain, by the way, uh, yeah, this is not. So oh. this is, this is just a, a model of it. Okay. Um, but and, and maybe I shouldn't even show it. Let me just describe the brain. So it's <laughs> it's red. It's like as as red as a pomegranate. The reddest red you can think of. Why? Because it has so much blood in it. The neurons are blood hogs. They need lots of oxygen. They need um, they produce a tremendous amount of waste product that has to be taken away. So there's a lot of blood vessels in there. The other thing that's weird about the brain, you know, we have the skull. Underneath the skull are these this leather covering leather-like covering called the meninges. Then there's fluid in there protecting this uh, organ that has the consistency of jello. So it has the consistency of jello, and that's why if you have, uh, if you have a, a car accident or you get hit in the head, you play football, the, the Super Bowl's coming up, it gets jostled around, and you probably can't see this, but the, this is the skull portion of this, and I don't know if you can see it very well. It's clear, unfortunately. No, but if you, but the, if you keep it still for a moment, we can see it. Sorry. Yeah. So the the interior of the the bottom portion of the skull that the, where your brain sits is incredibly convoluted. It has sharp things. They're so sharp that if you were to rest your your hand against the bottom of a skull, it'll draw blood. I mean, there's Ooh. like pokey things that stick up. So you can imagine you have something that has a consistency of jello. You hit your head, and it goes through this Boing. process. No, yeah, it shakes Boing. around like jello. Concussion, <laughs> like, like concussion, jello in a ball, and it scrapes along these things. In any case, let me get back to. Um, so that's the brain. It's a, it's a very sensitive organ, and it's and you should take care of it, and probably not play football. Um, I did four <laughs> years of high school football, so it was wasn't a good thing to do. 
Um, but <laughs> there's this portion of the brain, and let me see if I can get a good picture of this. So this is the brain stem. It, it turns into the spinal cord further down. And on either side of the brain stem are two dots. And you can't see it on here because they're white, and they really should be black. They're called the substantia nigra. Are you bored yet? Yeah. No. So the substantia nigra is the it's literally in Latin. It's substance black, substantia nigra, and um, and it's the only place in the brain that has what's called neuromelanin. You know what neuro is? It's the neurology of the brain, and you know what melanin is? It's the stuff that gives us a tan. Um, and so, for some reason, these two little dots on either side of the brain stem are very dark. It doesn't matter how you scan the brain or what, how you dissect it, you always see these two little dots on either side. They produce dopamine. And when people have Parkinson's, they don't produce enough dopamine. And they, they start, it's usually pill rolling at the fingers and then it goes into very big tremors. What and then they get locked. What dopamine do for us? It facilitates movement. It controls movement. So every muscle in your body has to both be able to relax and it has to be able to contract and it has to do it in this beautiful dance when your triceps contracts to extend your elbow your biceps has to agree to relax dopamine is the the neurotransmitter that allows all that to happen and as the uh, in alzheimer's the first thing to get attacked is the substantia nigra so they start not being able to produce dopamine and so they, they're often prescribed drugs that are considered dopaminergic. dopaminergic. The famous one is L-DOPA. Go figure. They gave it a, an easy name. Mm -hmm. And when they take these drugs, they feel great. So dopamine makes you feel really, really good. And they often don't get the dosage right. So the person who has Parkinson's is given essentially an overdose of dopamine. And so they'll become hypersexualized since we need to turn this back to an X-rated uh, discussion <laughs> once again for whatever reason. And so they go, hi, honey, I'm home. I'm feeling great. How you doing? How you doing? Um, they, uh, they feel like they can't be beat. So they go to casinos and they spend all their money. They turn to uh, shopping and they shop and shop and shop. They feel great. They eat everything in sight because they everything feels, you know, I'm not going to get fat or die of cancer or whatever it is. These are so, compulsions. Uh, these are, that, and, right. That you're and, talking about. It's interesting. Yeah. And one of the things, speaking of compulsions, that happens to people that are overdosing on dopamine is they become hoarders. Or they'll do strange things where there's this thing called hobbyism where they'll um, decide that once they uh, they have Parkinson's and they start to get this overdose of dopamine prescribed by the MD they decide that they have a hobby so a classic example is somebody decides their hobby is fixing old cell phones now they may have had an electronics background they're really interested in fixing stuff, so they get a whole bunch of cell phones and they fix them and fix them and fix them. And sometimes it happens for more than five hours a day. There have been situations where people will do the hobby, get exhausted, fall out of their wheelchair, hit the ground. When they hit the ground, that wakes them up and they go back to doing the hobby on the ground. So if, if you know you see behaviors like this in your loved one that has Parkinson's, then call the doctor and say, hey, can we cut this pill in half? Because he's essentially being uh, overdosed on dopamine. And the thing is, they can give the drug and give the drug and give the drug, and at some point, it they get, what's the, where, where you get used to something? And it, acclimated. You know, too acclimated to it, and then the drug doesn't work anymore. So they're doing two bad things for the patient. But, you know, a lot of times they're given the drugs and they're sent home, and the caregiver is the one who recognizes these bizarre right. behaviors. So if you see this sort of hypersexuality, eating too much, spending money where, where, when they shouldn't be, these kinds of weird behaviors with hoarding, talk to the doctor and maybe get dopamine, the, the L-dopa, the drugs that they're, that they're using. Cinemet, Cinemet is the other famous one. Uh, get the pill cut in half and, and maybe you can 
um, now, you have some benefit. One of the common um, problems with uh, brains is that it hurts, headaches, migraines, whatever you want to call them. <laughs> and Adrian is no stranger to that kind of pain. Actually, we just at the doctor today, right? Yes, uh, yes I was. Doctor call. So tell us about migraines and headaches and what's the difference and how we can fix them and what miracle drugs can stop them. Well, the miracle drugs uh, may be coming. Um, Adrian, I'm sorry to hear that. I get headaches as well. I'm and now taking one of the miracle drugs. Are I've you? I've had migraines since I'm four and a half. Oh, and I haven't had a headache in a year and a half. Is they know it, what causes them, Adrian? I don't know. I mean, physiologically, you know, for a long time they said, for whatever hormonal reason, or where I get headaches as well, I've had deep headaches since I was about 27. Mm. And uh, and mine as well have waned, and I can tell you what it, what works for me, but works works for people is different. Everybody's different. Um, but there's a vasodilation, so the blood right. vessels in, in the brain get larger. They put pressure on the nerve endings, and then there's a vasoconstriction, and then it happens again, and then there's all these hormones that come out. It's a whole metabolic soup that's really quite tough. The, um, the Ultimately, what ends up happening is you get this horrible headache, and Adrian, I think you would agree with me, it's not just the headache. It's oh, the, no. It's the incredible <laughs> nausea. It's the inability to think of your own phone number. Um, right, the, and, and yeah. there's the aura for some people. I've never had aura, but I find that a very interesting thing. People will know that they're going to be getting a headache because, because of an aura. I don't get a classic aura, but the first thing that hits me is a visual disturbance. Everything looks too damn real. It's like reality on, you know, on steroids. <laughs> yeah, and I can tell. Then one's coming down the pike. Um, one of the things that really helped me, and this is what's helpful about. So first of all, here's what I'll say about migraine and cluster headaches. There's actual damage to the brain that's done mm. every time you have a headache. Oh. Um, yeah, it's it's not good news, and there's no part of the brain that's there. So that that you know you're still intact cognitively, that's good, and that you have something that works is really good because now we can, you know, and with neuroplasticity on the on the back end of it, you can grow new connections and and uh, get anything that you lost, you can get back. Um, but there's little micro infarcts, little baby strokes that happen throughout mm. the brain. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. So one of the things that worked for me was a, a medication that I'm on for high blood pressure. And I went to my doctor and I said, look, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that this this drug that I take, and here's the bottle of it, is, um, <laughs> I won't pronounce it right, but amylodipine, A-M-L-O-D-I-P-I-N-E. And as soon as I started taking this, they were reduced by 95%. Wow. And then, and, and now you know how it is because you've been there where you had them and then you didn't have them. It's like, oh, this is what they're talking about. It's this a miracle. Is where, this is where I don't have to be afraid that will I be sick at work? Will, when I come home, if I have a wedding next month, am I going to be sick? Am I going to be sick at my own wedding, which I was? Um, so it's it's uh, quite a thing. But look, what I would say about headaches is if you can get treatment, get treatment because it, there is brain damage happening. Really? Wow. Yeah. So how does exercise help? Everyone says exercise helps the whole body. Does it really? Even the brain? Oh, yeah, absolutely. By the way, Dave, we can't see your video, I, I believe. All we see is yeah, DN. I'm, I'm, I'm having I some network you issues. Oh, okay, I see you now. I see you. Oh, I'm having some network in. issues as they're cutting in and yeah. out. They're just wrapping well, up to the day. Yeah. No, yeah. It's, it, it could be the alien Jew lasers. Well, I can hear you. So just, <laughs> just keep that was random. <laughs> <laughs> Those alien Jew lasers. Yeah. I hate when that happens. <laughs> yeah, me too. <sighs> That's Exercise. Funny. 
Exercise is really good for the brain. You know, it increases blood flow, and and the brain Mm. loves blood. Um, And it does a number of of other things, hormonal and otherwise. It increases, you know, the rate in which uh, dendrites fire and synaptic connections fire. Dendrites, Um, synaptic connections. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, you want? Do you want me to get out my uh, model for for a neuron? <laughs> I almost heard you say no, but here it is. Here it is, right here. So I love this as a model. So this is the um, neuron cell body. These are the dendrites, the little hairy things that hang off, and they connect to other neurons. And then there's a long axon, and so it's a perfect look. Right there is a neuron, and uh, mm-hmm. and so exercise just does so many things. It's it's a whole different discussion and it could go on for a very long time, but Mm -hmm. exercise and the brain get along very well together. Well, we're, we're coming up on the end of the hour. It's amazing how fun we've had when you're having fun, when you're fun, time flies when you're having fun. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, (laughs) What if we want to get a hold of you and read your book and talk to you or email you? What's the best way to contact you? So it's super simple because it's all the same thing. So if you take the words stronger after stroke, that's the name of the book, stronger after stroke. If you put it all all together, you have my email address. So stronger after stroke, no, no breaks in there. Stronger after stroke at yahoo.com. Um, my blog is the, if you just Google stronger after stroke blog, you'll find it. There's a lot of resources on there for people with Alzheimer's, with headaches, with, um, with stroke, of course. Um, what are the other pathologies? Um, Parkinson's is the other one. And then also phantom limb pain, which is sort of unrelated. Mm. Um, but also traumatic stress disorder as well. Um, I don't have that. Uh, that's not a an area that uh, that I'm an expert on at all. So um, um, last but, question, yeah, yes, sir. Uh, for sixty seconds. Um, tell yeah. us what what you hope to accomplish by writing the book. You know why you wrote it and uh, and how it will help people. So there's a lot of amazing research out there. It's not certainly not just our lab. There's labs around the world working on this question. How do people with brain injury get better? Um, it's a tragedy that that information isn't getting to people who actually have brain injury. What I, all I did was take their hard work and make it simple. And that's, that's you know, with, this goes right back to your first question. Well, why are you here? I think that's why I'm here. <laughs> and we come back to the beginning, don't we? Yes, we do. Well, big thank you so much for coming on the show, Pete. And, I had a ball. Uh, Good. <laughs> yeah, of course you fun. did. That's because we uh, it was all spontaneous, and we were flying by the seat of our pants, and nothing was <laughs> working the way it should, but we still made it work. It takes a lot to <laughs> take this show off the air, doesn't it? It's, it's a tank. <laughs> It's an attack, that's right, from the aliens. Which one's? Uh, the, Ju- the Jewish, uh, the, the alien Jewish lasers. Uh, that's Michelle that's, Green. That yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, again, Q-Anon. everybody, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you again next time. And Adrian, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, it's uh, thecaregiverspace.org or the Facebook page with the same name. Caregiver Space. I'm at caregiverdave.com with the Facebook page, Caregiver Dave. So, uh, and Pete, you have, are you on Facebook as well? Um, yeah, yeah. It's uh, Stronger After Stroke on Facebook. Everything's Stronger okay, After Stroke. Yeah. This guy is pretty I'm a consistent. one trick pony. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I just do want to add that um, that is a very important survey that Californians need to take if you are listening to this. Uh, you've got a couple of weeks to do it, so please hurry and don't uh, miss out on your opportunity to make $10. CaliforniaCareSurvey.org. All right. Thank you again. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing.